In partnership with 2SER, the Walkley Talks podcast presents the latest episode of For the State, a weekly program about the media featuring Australia's leading journalists. Broadcast live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3. Hello and welcome to Fourth Estate's live media and current affairs panel show for the week commencing the 6th of July. My name is Mariam Chihab. Tonight we'll be discussing the impact of Joe Hockey's defamation win against Fairfax, how well 60 Minutes did on their Bell Gibson story, and attempts by the Labor Party to launch its own news service. Joining me in the studio today is Melissa Hoyer, editor at large for news.com.au. Hi, Mel. Good evening. Mark DiStefano, breaking news report at BuzzFeed. Welcome back to Fourth Estate. Hey, Mariam, how are you? Good, thank you. And Kate Orbison, journalist at the Sydney Morning Herald. Hi, Kate. Hey, how are you going? Good, thank you. To have your say on the issues that we're discussing, get in touch with us through Twitter. Our handle is at fourthestateau, all letters, no numbers. And remember, you can now find Fourth Estate's weekly podcast on iTunes and on SoundCloud, where you'll be able to listen back to this episode and many others. Now, before we get into the nitty and gritty, (laughs) Mark, we saw you getting your arts and crafts on last week, chopping up a whole bunch of articles um, out of the Australian's print editions. What on earth was that about? (laughs) No, look, this is something that I feel as though that uh, every journalist who um, wakes up in the morning does. They check the papers every day. You know, the Australian, the Finn, um, and then the Metro tabloids and the... Um, and the SMH or the Fairfax papers you've got. And the thing is that the Oz is one of those papers that really is a specialist broadsheet. Not a lot of punters would read it. Um, But um, every day since the Zaki Maller Q&A episode has aired, there has been a total flip out from the Oz, um, from their media writers, from their political writers. And every day um, I have just, I mean, we've all been watching it, just thinking to ourselves, what what is the next angle? How are they going to actually do another story on Q and A and Zaki Maller? Um, so on Thursday last week, I decided to tell my news editor that I was going to spend two hours uh, cutting up every single article uh, in twelve newspapers, and uh, we decided to put an end on end and and weave it around the office, and it went eleven meters. So they did eleven <laughs> meters of coverage in eleven days, um, and I can report that uh, I've. I started cutting up today's and starting to add it to the snake, the, the Oz snake. Going. It's still going. Uh, there's another metre and a half wow. uh, over the last two newspapers. So that was the Weekend Australian and today's Monday paper. And I can guarantee you tomorrow, with the way that the boycotts are going, I, I just I just reckon there's going to be some more coverage tomorrow to add to our snake. I think the moral to that, though, is you have a very big budget <laughs> to be buying all of that newsprint. Yeah, exactly. A lot of people have been saying, BuzzFeed, you guys buy newspapers? And it's like, yes, that's what we do. We're trying to figure out ways to get into the news. And I think that... um. I, I, but uh, the Australian has been very funny about it. They tweeted out um, our Vine and Mark Scott tweeted it as well. So I think that everyone's playing um, a little bit of tongue-in-cheek when it comes down to it. Even, you know, Sherry Marks, the media editor at The Oz, she's got a really good sense of humour um, and everyone's taking it in the right way. So I hope that a lot of people put their sabres down and, and, and realise that a lot of the time, even the Oz's media writers are having a bit of a go themselves. Exactly. Great. Well, moving on to our first topic then. Last week, Treasurer Joe Hockey won $200,000 in his defamation case against Fairfax. Hockey had claimed that a front-page story on the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, headlined Treasurer for Sale, had insinuated he was corrupt. The judge ruled the articles themselves did not defame Hockey, but a poster and two tweets with the same headline did. 
Fairfax was forced to pay $40,000 for each tweet and $120,000 for the poster. Now, Fairfax throughout the trial had argued qualified privilege, basically saying it was a matter of public interest. But the judge disqualified this, finding Fairfax had malice behind the headline, referring to emails sent by SMH editor-in-chief Darren Goodsir, where he said, quote, I want to have this nailed to the cross in more ways than one. Mark, you were in the courtroom covering the case and I believe you were the first one to tweet the result. What was the atmosphere like inside court? It was really strange because usually you'll have um, the person who is bringing the the court... uh, the, the, the case to court in the room. Joe Hockey was on holidays in Hong Kong at the time, so his barrister was there, and there was some Fairfax um, uh, of the legal team there, but there was no Darren Goodsir, no Sean Nichols, and they had actually been there during throughout the case. So instead, it was a packed courtroom for journalists. Um, uh, there were some Fairfax journalists there who had come to support, um, including the very high-profile columnist Paul Sheen, so he'd just shown up by himself to, to show support. Um, and uh, it was one of those circumstances where Justice Richard White decided to get straight down to it. He was actually teleconferencing in from South Australia, um, and he um, got right down to it and said, as, you, as you've just said in your introduction, that it was actually uh, $200,000 in damages that they'd have to pay, but it was something where he really did... Um, I guess, draw a line and say it was the promotion of the story that was defamatory and not the story itself, which is something that I think that a lot of people um, in the legal fraternity and the media fraternity have been thinking about in the last couple of uh, days, essentially saying to ourselves, okay, so if we do a story that's really well researched, that has some explosive allegations and all of the thing, or we do all of the good journalism behind it, how can we stuff up so monumentally in the promotion of the story in what is the headline? that goes forth and I think that is something that every um, it may actually send a chill through every newsroom it definitely sent a chill through our small news team where my editor actually printed off um, uh, uh, a few of the think pieces that have been written in the last couple of days and actually told all of us to read all of them because he was very concerned about the precedent it actually sets for social media. Mm. Do, do you know how much the court case cost? Yeah, so it, it looks as though, and Richard Ackland in The Guardian wrote this, that it looks as though that the legal costs are going to uh, so probably go up to about a million dollars. The costs um, will then go back to court, I think it's in about a week or two, where Fairfax um, and will go against hockey to basically say, you only won such a small part of the case, so therefore you should actually be paying our legal bills. Um, and it looks as though, according to uh, people like Richard Ackland, who is uh, a much better legal uh, journalist when it comes to this sort of stuff, he actually says that Fairfax have good grounds to actually claim those legal costs back. So it could actually mean that Joe Hockey comes out of this uh, in the red, not in the black. Kate, do you think a reform of defamation laws are needed um, so it's harder for politicians to sue for defamation? Uh, It certainly seems that there does need to be reform. Whether or not that's to make it hard for politicians to sue, well, I'm I'm not sure. But the the law itself definitely seems to need to catch up with the times. Um, The the judges, um, uh, basically his decision seemed to be that people who didn't click on the tweet would still have seen that hockey for sale and not gotten the full context of the article, which was not defamatory. But that seems to suggest that anyone who sees the headline of a newspaper 
reads the entire story, which we know isn't the case. So it's one of those things where the media are constantly trying to catch up and catch up and catch up to to Twitter, to social media, to sharing our stories and getting them out there in in the most snappy, headline-grabbing way we can. And now we're going to be penalised for it because the law is just not um, is not catching up with us. Yeah, I think what that's you- the thing. The law has to now catch up with, you know, we are now working in a space that is constantly evolving, constantly changing, but the law isn't changing as quickly as we are. Um, you know, and as you said, that was when you suddenly looked at that tweet, you know, the two tweets that came out, the, you know, the one poster that came out, he obviously just took that so incredibly personally to even take it to court. I mean, I've read tweets Facebook posts, Instagram posts that are a billion times mm. more defamatory than that, not particularly for pol- from politicians, but maybe celebs or, mm. or whatever. But he was just so intent on proving the point that those three elements, one poster and two tweets, totally, totally defamed him. But when you looked at the stories, you said there was nothing in that at all that was defamatory. So... It's, it's, it's like they were, they were like, it's two parallel universes it's, yeah. going on together. And that's a really good point. When you see people tweet things about you on Twitter, how likely are you now to go, oh, defamation, taking you to court, suing you for all you've got? And that's what a few people have said. Are we going to see this flurry of ridiculous de- defamation Which cases? Which then goes to the, the fact that will social media platforms become so bland, so beige, so blancmange that we, know <laughs> that we won't be writing things that, that are really, okay, sure, we can be cheeky. To, you know, defamatory and cheeky are two totally different things. But, you know, I do worry. I know if I do do, you know, a tweet or, or a, uh, a, a post that is a bit, you know, risque, I think, oh, God, here, <laughs> I, here it goes. No, because no, you just totally. know you're going to have to spend the next two or three hours mm. sort of, warding off people who are then either abusing you or retweeting you. So I just ignore, ignore, ignore. Something I want to say just as a um, a lesson that we've learned um, where I work is the thing to remember, and and this is something I think actually comes out of this this case very, um, very presciently, is the fact that every tweet is read in isolation. So um, imagine this, and, and this is something that my boss reminds me of all the time, at, you know, you might do a Twitter storm. You might actually tweet, you know, 10, 12, 13 tweets. But the thing is, it's all read in isolation. So you could take one of those tweets and you can actually find that hyperlink and you post it to someone and it is is posted without complete context of the issue, um, not within the stream of everyone else's tweets. It's not within the stream of, like, your own Twitter stream or your own thoughts. And I think that that is the one lesson that I think that uh, a lot of journalists need to remember. And, I mean, I even have to remember because we try to push the envelope a lot. Um, and, and that is something that I think that uh, the law and defamation law will come down hard on is that as, as, as much as you think that you are posting on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or whatever within the context of a story, mm-hmm. it's actually can be taken completely out of context um, uh, and actually posted to someone or, or actually in this case be used in a court of law against you and I think that's the scary thing is that just remember that every single thing you put out there um, if you don't have the context around it it actually has the possibility of being defamatory which is terrifying and mm. even the same with, with email you look at the email that mm. um, you know was sent by the SMH editor that, you know you have to now be conscious of every single thing we all write is findable, gettable. Yeah. So you basically have to be so bland. Yes, I will see you at two o'clock. You yeah. know, you can't. Mm. If you start adding those little sort of 
thumb things your mate may have done a few years ago, you nearly have to start talking in sign language. I think mm. we've all been in, uh, and obviously Kate, is, is it's hard for her because she obviously <laughs> works with these people, but um, I'm sure Melissa and I have been in, in, in newsrooms before where colourful language um, around stories is quite uh, common yep. to the point where it's it's you actually speak in euphemism. Yes. So I actually think that when the things like nail him to the cross and, you know, go get him, you know, that sort of language about, about how you ask questions from your editor, them coming down on you, that is so commonplace mm. to the point where I actually would be very sad to see it go. And that is the one thing that my boss now says is that just let's have a verbal brainstorm. Yes, exactly. Let's not let's not put it into we have a we have an internal communication system. He goes, let's not do it over internal comms, let's do it verbally. Yep. Especially when it comes to making up headlines, because a lot of the times the initial headlines can come across when they're out of context, very risky. Yeah, my editor said the same thing we were talking about last week when all this was happening here. And he said, Yeah, sure. You're in a newsroom. You're going to say mm. if this yeah. or, you know, you're going to say things about people. But do not, do not put it on an email. You know, totally. You're going to have those those mad conversations where you do say what you really think, but do not commit it to paper, to paper or to online. Well, speaking of headlines, the judge gave some possible alternatives. <laughs> One of them was hockey, membership, donations and access, herald Aww. investigation. Who would read that? <laughs> Kate, how important are snappy headlines when it comes to selling papers or getting people to cl- click on an article? Oh, so important when it comes to getting people to click on an article. That's all they see before they click. You're not going to click something that's as, as bland as that. And I think look, the, the best thing I've seen on this is Bridget Delaney's piece in The Guardian this week, where she she basically just tore it to shreds. Like, this is this is how we speak. This is our uh, This is how we commodify our work and how we get it out to the biggest and broadest audience we can. And if the judge is going to rule that these articles were in the public interest, then it's in the public interest to read them. And it's in the public interest for us to write the snappy headlines mm-hmm. that are going to get people there in the first place. This is Fourth Estate. I'm Mariam Chihab and I'm joined by Melissa Hoyer from news.com.au, Mark DiStefano from BuzzFeed and Kate Orbison from the Sydney Morning Herald. Well, with all the controversies surrounding Q&A over the last couple of weeks, we haven't had a chance to get stuck into another recent television spectacle, 60 Minutes Tell or Interview with wellness fraud star Belle Gibson. (laughs) Belle Gibson, the health blogger who duped hundreds of thousands of followers by claiming to have multiple cancers when she actually didn't, didn't really seem prepared to tell all when she appeared on 60 Minutes last weekend. But interviewer Tara Brown wasn't having any of it. Again and again, she implored her to tell the truth and it made for some pretty uncomfortable viewing. Melissa, you wrote a column about this. What is it about Belle's interview that has angered so many people? I think the one thing that angered most people was this alleged $45,000 figure that was allegedly paid to her for the interview. Sure, you know, we had already read in the last few weeks that she had uh, defrauded people. She had taken money from people she shouldn't. She lied. She never had cancer. We knew all of that. But suddenly then to hear that perhaps she was getting paid this amount of money, it actually made people so, like their blood was boiling. I mean, when we were, I was watching it, I think like many people were on, on, on Sunday night, even just looking at the Twitter stream, the anger that people had about that the fact that she was allegedly getting paid, and we still don't know whether that was true, but I think we can imagine there would have been a particular fee. I think the other thing is, too, she still wasn't sorry. You know, there was not that look on her face that actually said, you know what, I'm sorry, I am, I am, I've, I've been diagnosed, I am a sick person, 
I'm sorry what, what I've done. Yeah, I think I'm sorry and the money. Those two things really, really <laughs> Mark, what do you think? You know, it's it's something that I uh, I will attest that I'm not really into the whole uh, wellness and health sphere of Australian uh, media. But I what I do recognise that it is huge business. Um, especially, you only have to um, look at what are some of the top rating stories on Fairfax and News Corp every day, and quite often they're the the secondary sites to the main site that have these stories about you know um, about health and wellness. It is paleo diet, paleo diets, <laughs> all of that stuff. I, and, and actually, to tell you the truth, you know, it doesn't speak to me, but it speaks to so many people around Australia. Um, this story was the perfect um, way for people like myself to get into that world. And I tell you what, and this is something that um, you know, I'm, I think you may ask eventually, is that I thought that the actual uh, piece itself was so beautifully put together from 60 Minutes. Um, it didn't feel like entrapment. It didn't feel like they were mm. blackmailing her. It didn't feel like she was ever having the gotcha moment. I felt that Tara Brown gave uh, her incredible amount of fair play. Um, and then to, be act- to actually have those those gotcha moments, made-for-TV moments where they confront her about the birth certificate, those sort of things, you were just sort of like sitting on your couch going, oh, my God, screaming <laughs> at the TV. So I, I would just say, I would just say, uh, amongst all of this, the Bell Gibson interview, um, when it comes to checkbook journalism, like I, I really disdain it and I, I don't think it's right, but, you know, if 60 Minutes needed to pay the $45,000, otherwise mm. she was going to go to Australian Women's Weekly or if she was going to go to Daily Mail or whoever it was, um, you know, I, I sort of sometimes feel as though the checkbook journalism is a necessary evil that we have in the Australian tabloid sphere um, and I think that 60 Minutes with with the, if it, they did pay the money they did a, such a good job with putting the piece together to not to not make it out as if Bell Gibson was the actual exactly. victim. Exactly, I mean Tara Brown did a, she was incredibly good at it, she did not give an inch, no. she, 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 she tried to try mm. to get from Bell what we wanted to hear which was the truth but even you could tell she was getting frustrated mm. That she was getting nowhere because she was talking basically to, we think, someone who is a perpetual liar. Well, Kate, you're a former health journal. What's with the sudden growth of wellness gurus and how does good health journalism hold them to account? Yeah, there's always been this um, snake oil kind of salesmanship going on since, or, or just kind of pop medicine going on for ages. And I was a medical journalist and we would not touch any of this stuff. It just would not happen. And Health journalists do have a responsibility, like any other journalist, to do their research. That's what it really comes down to. And in the wellness health sphere, it's called medicine and it's called research. And there are gold standard um, meta-analyses, systematic reviews. The Cochrane Library, for instance, will come in and and rip apart some of the most popular Homeopathy was the most recent example I can think of where they basically, it's very hard for Cochrane to come out and say, look, there's no evidence to back this up because it's just so in-depth and intricate. But they did. They basically said, look, there's, there's nothing to this. But we also know that there are many, many people that just don't, don't listen, don't want to hear it. They're very wary about conventional medicine and they're scared of anything that has too many numbers and letters in it that looks like it's mm. spent too much time on the periodic table. And so it's much easy. It's much easier for someone to come in and just go, look, I've got the natural solution for you. Now, this presents another problem for health journalists because you don't want to be shaming these people out of what they think is really going to help them, help their kids. And we've seen that in a big way when it comes to natural remedies uh, in place of vaccinations. Mm. And there have been a lot of uh, media outlets who, 
they think and they, I truly believe they think they're doing the right thing by shaming these um, these people, the anti-vaxxers, all the rest, which is great at making you feel really good. Like you're you're on your high horse, you, you're you know, you're pointing out these fraudsters like Bill Gibson and you're going, you are wrong, you're wrong, get back into your hole. But the problem is that's not going to make them vaccinate their kids. Mm. And that has to be the end point in all this. That's what good health journalism should do. But unfortunately, though, too, with the, the Bill Gibson story, it took on a life of its own. Here she was, this, what was she when she was first diagnosed? Mm. And I use quotes on that. <laughs> Probably, what, 19 or 20 mm. She it, she was sort of a it was a sexy story and I mm. mean that in a I mean she was she was this young pretty girl suddenly you know becoming this wellness warrior she had found you know the 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 truth the serum that was going to sort of save her from cancer all the elements elements were there to make it a story that the media then mm. quite mm. happily went oh, wow. with without probably getting the right medical yeah. journalists to really check it out. Yeah. And I think as well with Belle, we've seen um, a lot of armchair psychiatry, which makes me very uncomfortable as well. I, I mean, I watched the 60 Minutes. I, I agree with Mark and, and Melissa. I thought it was a really well done um, bit of journalism. Um, but I watched it thinking... I've watched Catfish. You know, we, we've all we've all heard these stories of people getting caught up with this amazing fantasy world they can create from themselves online and then they're just caught out in the light and they dig in deeper. Yes. And I just feel like that's what's happened with Belle. Saying that, I put as much stock in my non-diagnosis as I do to other people who diagnose her from their lounge rooms. Well, there has been suggestion that Belle Gibson might have a mental illness. Um, she obviously has an incredible tendency for creating fantasy and now she's endured the most public fall from grace. Melissa, does the media have a responsibility not to throw her under the bus too much? Well, I'm sure, but she does have family, we think, around her, friends. If she does have a mental illness, and let's hope she doesn't, but you would think just the way she has been, you know, she has been going on, there is something that isn't quite right at this point in her life. You know, I don't think it's the media's fault. I mean, she quite happily, when she was raising money and getting herself out there and getting publicity to raise bucks to, you know, get her whole wellness thing going, she was quite happy to put herself out there. So when she suddenly caught out, which she has been, I don't think we can then also, we can go... Oh, he's no media. We can't talk to her now because you mm. know she mightn't be well. She may not be well, but is it up to us then to diagnose her as as having a, a having an mm. issue? I don't know. Mark, what do you think? Look, I think that um, this is where uh, you know strong editorial considerations come into play with every sort of issue. Um, I think that uh, there would have been a really, really good editorial meeting at Channel 9 about whether this was giving a platform to someone, um, whether uh, the actual way it was put together was actually going to cause her maybe maybe mental damage, who even knows? I mean, But I, I agree with Kate. I think that the, the thing is, a lot of the times, as armchair mental um, uh, you know, psychologists that we can sometimes say, you know, well, she's clearly um, going through some sort of mental illness. I mean, like, let's just take a step back and realise that she is in the public eye. She's put herself into the public eye in the way that she has. She's gotten herself very, very deep. But there, I mean, from photos and stuff that we've seen, she clearly has people around her. Mm. She's not an isolated case. The one thing I will say is like, you know, and I don't want to obviously, you know, 
go on about the un, uh, unseen victims of, of Bell Gibson. But what I will say is that a lot of the times we should worry about Bell Gibson, but what she did do is provide some very, very damaging, dangerous advice yeah. to a lot of um, maybe, you know, cancer sufferers or, or people out there who took her advice that, that could have led to some real harm. Yeah. So all I would say is as, as much as, yes, there should be some serious editorial control over whether you actually give someone with a mental illness more platform, I would only say that sometimes that actually... Um, doesn't if you put it on the seesaw of judgment sometimes you know the the, the public interest in actually um, debunking the myths in such a public way where millions of people are watching it is sometimes probably a better use of that platform than, absolutely than that. Yeah. and the other thing is you, you, everyone sneered when she seems to have concocted or cannot he can't be found this this crock of a doctor with this machine that somehow diagnosed her with cancer. Mm. Everyone was up in arms. Why didn't she go to a doctor? But the thing is, it'd be great if we could look at that situation uh, in in the broader sphere of there are so many people that self-diagnose without going to a doctor. This is Fourth Estate. I'm Mariam Chihab and I'm joined by Melissa Hoyer from news.com.au, Mark DiStefano from BuzzFeed and Kate Orbison from the Sydney Morning Herald. The Labor Party has launched a crowdfunder to get their own news service, the Labor Herald, off the ground. The news site aims to communicate Labor messages that were supposedly not getting through to the mainstream media. They've promised a daily newsletter and an online news site with, quote, handy facts, interesting articles and video. They've hired former Fairfax blogger Alex Brooks as editor and they've and they want to launch in July. They're aiming to raise $30,000 on Possible, and as of today, they've raised little more than 12500 Mark, BuzzFeed News raised eyebrows when it began. What is it about the new media space that gives online publishers the nerve to try something new? Can I just say, and I know that this is going to come across as mean, but like, let's not speak about BuzzFeed in the same breath as the Labor Herald, <laughs> because... Chris, I will like there. There is a difference between what we run as like a global media conglomerate and uh, a, a little crowdfunded. Well, no, I, and, I, a I mouth and a mouthpiece and a mouthpiece for a political party. Yes. Yeah, but I take your point. There is an issue with trying to get something started off the ground. Um, and I will say this about the Labor Herald. Um, I think they've made the right hire in Alex Brooks. I think that she's very, very intelligent and um, they're going to go the right way about it. I just think, I mean, it's hard not to be cynical uh, to think that why the hell um, would you actually go to the Labor Herald's Facebook page or whatever to get any news that you don't, is actually just propaganda. Uh, a lot of uh, political parties around the world are now hiring journalists and content creators. Uber, the car sharing service, are hiring journalists now to, pro- to make their own content because that is the age that we're in. We're all moving away from being journalists and we're all becoming content creators. So I think that the one thing that I, I will say about the Labor Herald is that it makes sense. If you actually take a step back, it makes sense that to have a really strong community of members, whether it's a Facebook page or a website or a newsletter, that you can get a whole lot of really, really stinging information to. And if it's good information and if it's really shareable, that is the biggest thing. If people are actually going to want to share that information with other people, I think it's a great decision if if you're if you're that way inclined to vote for the Labor Party. Yeah. But I I will I will just say don't expect to get anything critical of the Labor Party in the Labor Herald because it just will never happen. Well, exactly. Obviously, if you are a diehard anything, whether mm. you you know you go shooting rabbits or whatever, I mean, you're going to buy the propaganda yeah. or read the propaganda that's created for your. I think that is love. actually a magazine about oh, shooting rabbits. No. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, you know, the, you can't help but think it will just be a propaganda sheet. 
Um, and then, of course, it will then be taken by you know, the coalition and then probably sent up. You know, So you then do wonder, is it going to be worthwhile even having it? Because I think the only true diehards will want to read it yeah. because it will just be so everything will just be all glossy and fabulous and just be so, so, so anti-coalition. Kate, in your opinion, if a journalist were to write for something like the Labour Herald, could they ever report on politics again? Yeah, they could. Depends where, though. <laughs> um, I think, look, I, I think Mark and Melissa have, have said it, the, it. The landscape is changing so that we're seeing, I guess, a really, really crude way of putting it would be trade mags coming out in various ways, shapes or forms. So... I don't know if Fairfax would hire them after writing for the Labor Herald. I know that they're tweeting, retweeting a lot of Fairfax yeah. articles at the moment. So, you know, can't argue with that. I will but- say this. Like Barry Cassidy, who's the ABC Insiders host, former Labor press secretary, you know, uh, you know, all of these people who are, are once worked within the Labor Party or the Liberal Party eventually find their way back into the media because the um, the membrane between politics and media is so permeable. So mm. I, I wouldn't doubt that if you wrote for the Labor Herald within six months to a year, you could find yourself working for Fairfax. I would only say, and this is something I'd even say to uni students, if the Labor Herald gave you a chance to write for it, write for it. Mm. Like, don't be snobbish about it. Don't think that if you write for something, it, it automatically closes a door to something else. It just doesn't. But do you think Andrew Bold could get a job there? Yeah, yeah. I actually think, I, I, think, I think that maybe Andrew Bold would find a, a good it? career move. Mm. Well, I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think there's a huge difference between, say, Amanda Vanstone, who's now working for ABC, and Amanda Vanstone coming from politics to reporting hard news from the press gallery in, in Canberra. There's a big difference. I worked for a paper that was a, a state-run paper in Ghana, and the president's picture was huge above the editor's head. And I can't help but picture, like, Alex Brooks sort of leaning over her home desk at home with a picture of Bill Shorten or <laughs> Hot elbow above her. <laughs> That's it from us on Fourth Estate this week. Thank you to our guests, Melissa Hoyer, Mark DiStefano and Kate Orbison. Thanks, ma'am. Don't forget, you can check out all our podcasts on the 2SER website as well as iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. My name is Mariam Chihab and you can catch us at the same time next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of 2SER's Fourth Estate. Fourth Estate can be heard live each Monday at 6.30pm on 2SER 107.3 and at 2SER.com. Check out the program description for links to follow 2SER and Fourth Estate. You can subscribe to Walkley Talks on iTunes and follow the Walkleys on Twitter and Facebook to be the first to know about upcoming Walkleys news and events.